This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and the Financial Times' Stephen Bush. Katie, to start with, Chris Philp, the policing minister, had the unenviable task of going on morning broadcast rounds this morning. And this is what he had to say. How can it be acceptable for someone who was running the Treasury to be in the position of having been careless in relation to their tax affairs? Look, I don't know precisely what form that carelessness took. Neither do you. Nobody does. And that's why we need the investigation to find out exactly he what happened. paid a penalty for and it. Then, yeah, but we, the we, settlement was in we, the region of £5 million. Pounds. We, don't, we don't know exactly what... I think that was the amount of tax owed, wasn't it? Look, we don't know exactly what happened. Right? We don't know what form this carelessness uh, took. So let's have an investigation to find out... Exactly do you think he was able to end those questions surrounding Nadim Zahawi that have kind of go into their probably about a fifth, fourth, fifth day now? The short answer, no. But I don't think anything is really going to do that, barring the resignation of Nadim Zahawi or potentially the outcome of this investigation. But I think even at that point, people would be you know, asking, well, is it, is it really possible for this politician to stay in quite a forward-facing media role? I think what was very intriguing to me about that media round is we are seeing... Number 10 distanced itself from Nadeem Sahari, I think, if you look at the various things that have happened since the weekend. So last week at Prime Minister's Questions, you have uh, Rishi Sunak saying, effectively, case closed. Mm. He's, he's declared everything he needs to. Then over the weekend, as there are more and more questions coming from the media, Nadeem Zahari put out a statement. There was one saying, you know, careless. And then between Saturday and Sunday, there was this confirmation that there was a penalty paid. And I think this is what has changed the Downing Street approach in the sense that you then have Richard Sunak saying that he will refer it mm. to the independent ethics advisor. You have a lobby briefing yesterday um, suggesting that the Prime Minister is not aware of the penalty. And if you look at Chris Phillips' comments, when he was pressed of, you know, well, surely the Prime Minister knew about this investigation given it was in the press at the time of appointing as chairman. If you dig into the detail, he was effectively saying that the Prime Minister understood no outstanding tax issues at the time of appointment and didn't know of discussions. And therefore, if I was Nadim Zahawi, I would not be sitting very pretty right now because I think that if you just if you just look at how the tone is changing mm. over the past 24 hours, I think that there is a view in Downing Street that they were not aware of all the facts. Now, we can also ask, well, shouldn't uh, Rishi Sunak have pressed harder given there are media reports at the time um, and so forth? But I think in terms of Nadim Zahari's fate, it's probably looking worse for him today than it was yesterday in terms of the government. Stephen, there are some people, and some in the Conservative Party indeed, who seem to think that Rishi Sunak should be moving faster on this, should be pushing Nadim Zahawi out. Do you think that Zahawi is pretty much a goner at this stage? Does he have to resign? Yeah, I can't conceive of a hypothetical which doesn't end with Nadim Zahawi having, yeah, being able to stay, right? Because all political parties well, unless they're new ones, have established historic vulnerabilities and present-day ones, right? What are the historic vulnerabilities in the Conservative Party under any leader has to be aware of? The concern it's seen as, you know, a party only for the rich, in it for itself, bit venal, etc., etc. What are the problems at the moment for, for the government of the day? Pressures on the cost of living, taxes going up. And then, of course, you have the individual fact that the Prime Minister himself had difficulties over his own household's tax affairs. 
I just think you can't have a situation where, with all of that backdrop, the party chair, which is, you know, as Kate says, a largely public-facing role in lots of ways, is carrying this political wound of having had to pay a penalty, partly because actually, OK, obviously careless but not deliberate is is the lowest tier of, of what HMRC can, can decide to do to you. But careless is not really a great look for a government. So, you know, I think he's going to have to go. The difficulty uh, for the Prime Minister is, is, should he be moving quicker in total? Yes. I, I think the, the question Katie raises of, you know, should he have, have sought more assurances at the time of appointment? Obviously. But Nadim Zahawi is a competent administrator who's well-liked in the parliamentary party. So he, he couldn't have gone from zero to 60. I, zero being last week going, you know, there are no questions to answer, to 60, the questions are so bad and you're going to be fired. So I don't think he has any choice at this point other than to prolong the pain because he can't invent time travel and go back to next week or go go back to last week or go back to the time he appointed him you know he is where he is yeah i think we're now just at a point where there could be new disclosures in the media which could up the pressure and you could see nadim sahari choose to go otherwise i think we're just waiting um until the end of the investigation which my understanding is uh is expected to be fairly quick and one thing we said yesterday was kicking this into the long grass well you still have a dominic Raab investigation i believe which has been going for some time but i think on this one there's a particular push to say you know let's let's try and wrap this up fairly quickly and and how much you really need to go over in terms of some of these figures to uh, to work out what what was uh, declared or flagged in an appropriate way and what wasn't so i think it'll be the end of that unless something comes up before then unexpected that we'll hear of nadim zahari's fate and then i think for rishi sunak i mean it's not a particularly close ally of the prime minister nadim zahari as we've Mm. spoken about but it's still the case that losing a party chairman who is popular with many of their colleagues is not something you want to do in terms of party management, something they've been trying for a lot. I think that they're now ending up in unpalatable decisions, whatever you do and outcomes. And it was only a year ago or so when we were talking about Nazim Zahawi as a dark horse, possibly. <laughs> um, <laughs> politics well, yes, is a and, brutal game. And Stephen, I wondered, it feels to me like the current scandal, because we also have the Richard Sharp row about the BBC chairman. Rishi Sunak does have questions to answer in terms of his appointment of Nadine Zahawi, of course. But probably the bigger question relates to Boris Johnson. While I think an investigation was on running, do you think now almost it's the Tory sleaze is becoming Rishi Sunak's problem, even if he isn't the, the the main cause of it in terms of going back to decisions that came before him? Yeah, so as you say, most of these issues are legacy issues from the, I would say from the previous Prime Minister, obviously the previous Prime Minister was Liz Truss. But, you know, um, most of these are legacy issues. But when you're the, in charge of an organisation, an organisation's problems are your problems, right? But also, because he made the, in my view, unwise decision to say, you know, to make his integrity, accountability and the other thing will will be at the heart of, of every level of the government I lead, which I think was a mistake, because if you're if you're in a politically fragile position, as the prime minister is, you can't really prioritise integrity, accountability, et cetera, et cetera. You have to prioritise passing legislation, keeping your party together. And a, a good way not to fail in politics is not to make promises you absolutely can't keep. But because he's made that promise, because he is now you know, in charge of the whole party, it very much is his problem. Now, if you look at the kind of interesting phenomena in the polling, broadly speaking, Rishi Sunak is more popular than the Conservative Party. And his popularity has dragged the Conservative Party up in the polls a bit. 
But the Conservative Party's unpopularity and the scandals surrounding it, the scandals inherited, are gradually dragging his popularity down. Now, of course, it may be that the economy's turned around by the time of the election, so the Conservative Party as a whole recovers. But it is a big problem for Rishi Sunak, one, because it's a problem that his party's unpopular, but two, because it does seem to be infecting him, as it were, um, among the country as a whole. Yeah, and I remember when we initially looked at that polling, and one of the things, you know, James Forsyth was pointing out in this podcast was ultimately Rishi Sunak needs the Conservative Party poll to rise up closer to his ratings, whereas right now it seems to be gravity and, and the other other happening. And Katie, as we record, the Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy is preparing to speak to Chatham House, the think tank, about Labour's approach to foreign policy. I mean, it's not something that the Labour Party has talked about much so far, and Lammy has been quite quiet on the Shadow Front Bench, but tell us about what we expect him to say. So this is uh, the Shadow Foreign Secretary talking about a, a promise to forge a new security pact between the UK and the European Union if they enter government. And I think this is interesting if you take a step back and look at it in relation to a few different interventions we've had recently. So, for example, you had Keir Starmer talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol and effectively saying, come on over Tories and help us all find a solution to the protocol. Um, I think saying during this uh, intervention that he would provide Rishi Sunak with the votes if he needed to fix the protocol because we didn't negotiate it ongoing, which is quite interesting in the sense it's not quite clear what votes you actually, what vote there would be on this. Mm. And it therefore was, again, an attempt by Labour to paint the Tories as divided, even though there's not an immediate Commons vote coming up on, on any of this stuff, but saying, oh, we can lend you votes for um, a vote that currently doesn't exist. And then then you also had Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves in Davos, where they were talking about working you know, with EU leaders, the fact that Britain would be more open to business on foreign investment. And that did lead to one front page in the eye, which we talked about saying, you know, EU wants Keir Starmer as prime minister, which I think is probably going a bit further. But you bring them all together. And it certainly feels like to me, the Labour Party is much more comfortable now talking about Europe and actually closer relationships with various European countries and leaders. And that is not the same as talking about the single market, of course, mm. um, or even the customs union. But I think it probably points to an increased confidence. Mm. Now they are so far ahead. Now it looks like a stable lead. And also now I think you look at some polling, which is, you know, the Tories struggling in a way to say what their big Brexit successes are, they're more front-footed. Stephen, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think Kate is exactly right. So someone in the, in the you know, the, in the Labour leadership said to me about six months ago and what they felt they needed to do was they needed to de-Brexitise European and foreign policy. You know, they needed to get to a point where they could talk about relationships with the EU without most of the popular press going, oh, does that mean the single market? Does that mean free movement? Because obviously, um, w- without wanting to, to sound like I'm being derogatory about, about large parts of the industry, broadly speaking, there's a, there is a sophisticated engagement with what the structures of the European Union actually do and involve than, you know, than you'd, you'd expect to get in the, the Spectator or the Economist or the New Statesman or the Financial Times, that in the sort of key election winning bits of the media, right, like the BBC, right, you say I want closer union with the, with, you know, with the European Union. And there was this period, remember, when um, you'd ask that and suddenly they'd be like, does that mean the single market? (laughs) Yeah, like, and then you can tell that they have successfully got to a point where people now understand and phytosanitary checks, whatever you think about the benefits of aligning with them, are not the same as free movement or, or, or the single market. And that has given them more confidence to start talking about things like security pacts, 
Because this may turn out to be famous last words and maybe they won't have done a, as good a job of this as, as they and I think. Because I think that when David Lammy gives this speech, no one is going to say, oh, a security pact, does that mean free movement is coming back? And that is basically, of course, the blood red line that the Labour Party does not want to get anywhere near is anything which suggests that free movement is on the ballot at the next election, anything that suggests that the Labour government might bring it back. And they do feel that they have successfully put that issue um, back in its box. They partly think that's because they, yeah, they partly think, oh, this validates the very clear position we took to make Brexit work stuff. But they also concede that one of the big changes is that because of the government's very high profile difficulties around small boats, immigration is no longer a comfortable topic for the government which means that the Labour Party faces less pressure because ultimately, okay, yeah, there are loads of reasons. One is that they have successfully moved the popular press to a position where they are not asking questions about the wrong bit of the EU, as it were. But the other is, is that because the Conservative Party can't go, doesn't that mean free movement? Because that means going, hey, let's talk about immigration, a topic where the Conservative Party has a, does not have a good story to tell. That all frees the Labour Party up to have this much more expansive, you know, yeah, we would align on this, yeah, we'd have a security pact on that, etc., etc. Now, I think there is a big risk to them there because um, they might be wrong, right? It might be that um, this does reopen all of those Brexit questions about free movement, about the referendum that they very much want closed. Well, let's see how it goes. That was really interesting. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Katie. And thank you very much for listening.